0: Hello, and welcome to GeoSpeaks podcast. GeoSpeaks is a podcast about how geography impacts our lives. Today we will be talking about the power of geography. We will be focusing on how people help others in vulnerable communities in international development. Today we have a guest, Dr. William Mosley, who is a professor at McAllister Mac- University. Dr. Mosley worked seven years in Africa doing international development as a peace corps and for
1: USAID. Dr. Mosley, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you go to school and what did you major in?
2: Sure. Um, So I was an undergraduate at Carleton College in Minnesota. I was actually a history major because uh, they didn't have uh, geography wasn't an option. And that's not unusual. Geography is a much bigger discipline internationally than it is in the United States. And then uh, sort of a long winding story. I have two master's degrees. One's in public policy with a lot of economics and the other was in natural resources management with a lot of ecology. And when I was writing my master's thesis, I started coming across some geographers who had written about um, indigenous soil management practices in Africa. But then when I really got interested in geography was when I was working for Save the Children UK, which is a British nonprofit in Southern Africa. And I was working with a big team of geographers. And so this eventually led me to get my PhD in geography uh, at the University of Georgia. That's
0: so interesting. Like, um, oh, my God, I'm completely blanking. I'm sorry.
2: No problem.
0: Um, so, what got you interested in international development? Like, was it a class or like a specific person?
2: Um, another great question. Yeah. So, when, well, it was a couple things. When I was an undergraduate, I studied abroad in uh, France. And when I was in France, my host family had spent a lot of time in Morocco, in Northern Africa. And um, this was my first time out of the country, and I really wanted to leave the country again, but I wanted to spend time in the Global South, not in the Global North. Uh, I went back to college, and I did take a number of development courses um, in a variety of different departments. Um, And then that led me in my senior year to apply to the Peace Corps. Um, which is a very common way for uh, Americans to get grassroots development experience. And I was sent to Mali in West Africa. And truth be told, um, I didn't know where Mali was. I had to look it up on a map. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I got sent to a small village of 200 people. I was an agricultural volunteer. And I just fell in love with Um, the way people were practicing agriculture under very challenging circumstances. And it's at that point that I decided uh, that I wanted to sort of make a first career in development, which I then went on to do more of before I eventually got my PhD in geography and went into academia.
1: Speaking of living and working in Africa, can you tell us more about what it was like living in Africa and what were some of the projects that you worked on?
2: Yeah, so I had a variety of different experiences. So as a Peace Corps volunteer, um, as I mentioned, I, I worked on agriculture. I lived in the village. Um, I had a host family, I ate local food Um, In addition to French, which is the government language, I learned a local language called Bambara or Bamana. And that's what I mostly worked in. It was only um, my counterpart uh, in the agricultural service and a local school teacher that spoke French. So I almost worked exclusively in in Bambara with farmers. Um, And, you know, we. We did a community garden, I helped people uh, put in a well to get um, better access to clean water. I actually worked a lot with beekeepers um, to sort of organize them in a cooperative and then market the honey in the capital city. Um, So that was the Peace Corps work. I went on to do, um, well, the longest stretch was with Save the Children UK. and that was in, uh, um, well, back in Mali, um, a village food security project, Project we um, were helping people establish grain banks where after the harvest they, the the sort of community grain bank would buy people surplus grain. And then in, later in the year when people needed grain, they could buy it back at a, um, affordable price, which was better than what the merchants were selling it for. I also worked for Save the Children in uh, Lesotho, Malawi, Zimbabwe, on a big hunger monitoring project. And there I was doing a lot of research, collecting baseline data. And then I've also worked for USAID, which is the um, uh, foreign bilateral assistance arm of the U.S. government. And I also worked in Washington, D.C., for the World Bank.
0: So, continuing off of like the projects, um, can you tell us which one was your favorite or like what you enjoyed the most or found to be like the most rewarding for a community?
2: Yeah, so I found the work to be just absolutely fascinating and intellectually very stimulating. Um, It's hard for me to put a finger on one particular project Um, I just there was such a steep learning curve and I was always um, encountering new people and new ecological situations I mean I think this um, village food security project in northern Mali in the region of Mopti that I helped um, manage for Save the Children UK um, it was in the middle of um, well, we had, I managed four offices, and each office had a team. But two of the offices were in the middle of the Inner, inner Niger Delta, which is this huge um, inland wetland, actually, where a lot of European birds uh, migrate to and spend the winter. And we would get there on uh, boats um, uh, because they were sort of seasonal islands um and then getting to know those different communities and working with them to set up these grain banks I felt was a really effective strategy for addressing seasonal hunger or seasonal food insecurity but also just culturally uh, really fascinating and interesting.
1: So we've read a bit about your profile and projects on your website we learned that you led. Led some study abroad programs for Macalester in South Africa and Botswana. Would you mind telling us about that?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I primarily work in two different regions of Africa Um, in West Africa, where I work in Mali, Burkina Faso, and I've worked a little bit in Niger. Uh, And then in Southern Africa, um, primarily in South Africa and Botswana, I used to do work in Zimbabwe. And so Southern Africa, um, I started working at, you know, sort of five years into my career at McAllister, And I liked that it was an easier place to bring students. It wasn't as environmentally challenging. And so the South Africa program is based in Cape Town. Um, in the southwestern part of South Africa, beautiful city right on the ocean. And I taught the core seminar in the beginning, which was on environment and development. Um, And then the students would go on to take two more courses at the university um, and do research projects. And I would help supervise the research projects. Um, And that program is run out of a geography department at University of Cape Town. And then Botswana, um, I was the director of the program, so I literally did everything. I taught the core course, I ran the program, I supervised students' research projects, they lived on campus at the university, they had local roommates, um, and that program had sort of a development focus. Botswana's Really interesting. It's um, it's a very successful African country. It's a middle-income country. So it, at independence, it was um, one of the poorest countries on the continent. Um, but they subsequently um, discovered diamonds, and they managed those diamonds very carefully, which allowed them to. Um, offer really good education to their citizens, really good health care. And they've largely, you know, avoided the problem of corruption or what some people call the resource curse. And today Botswana has sort of three pillars to the economy, it's the diamonds. Uh, They also produce grass-fed beef, some of which is exported to the European Union, and then they have a big ecotourism industry. Uh, And when I was there with the students, we got to go up and visit actually another massive inland wetland area known as the Okavanga Delta. This is different than the one I described in Mali. Um, And the students got to go on safari and we learned about um, sort of the relationship between the parks and the surrounding communities um, and a model known as community-based natural resource management.
0: Okay, so using your experience from when you stayed in Africa, global climate change is leaving millions of people living in Africa in need of food assistance due to extreme weather events such as droughts, floods and hurricanes. What do you think the affected countries can do to adjust to the change in weather and how the government and aid groups can help those impacted by the crisis?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. So. I think the thing to keep in mind is that um, Africans for a very long time have dealt with very um, Mm -hmm. variable weather. And so traditionally livelihood systems were set up to deal with that variability. So for example, you know, if there was a good rainfall year and people produced a surplus they would store that surplus. And then in the dry year when they didn't produce enough, they could fall back on those that surplus grain. Um, and so it was a really effective strategy for sort of managing the problem. Unfortunately, during colonialism, um, a lot of those systems were dismantled, mainly through taxation. Um, And so people would have to pay a head tax and cash and they couldn't store surplus grain anymore. And so um, the livelihood system was changed to one that was more focused on cash crop production and exports, which essentially made people more vulnerable to drought. So it's not we just can't think of the drought as causing the hunger. We have to think about the structure of the social system and the degree of vulnerability that's there. So I think the solution is reinforcing sort of local strategies that work, um, both in terms of grain storage, but also cropping systems that can deal with more climatic vulnerability. And I think um, the global north is culpable. Um, Large, you know, wealthy nations like the United States have produced a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions, and so I think we have a responsibility to um, help those countries that are most impacted by climate change and have not produced a lot of those emissions.
1: So obviously weather is a variable in food insecurity in Africa, but overall looking at the bigger picture, what do you believe are the best steps we can take towards moving away from the so-called agricultural revolution thinking and towards minimizing food security insecurity worldwide especially in africa where hunger seems to be the most prevalent
2: yeah so the um new green revolution for africa there the focus is um they want small farmers to more tightly integrate into um, of the global system and you know buy things like fertilizers and pesticides in order and and improve seeds and grow crops and sell the surplus to the market Um, that's may we work for some farmers uh, wealthy farmers but a lot of um, you know the poorest of the poor um, which includes a lot of women um don't have the financial resources to buy those inputs um and should the crop fail um, and they've taken um, loans or credit to buy those inputs they can become indebted which is a real problem so i think we need to um, reimagine systems that fit the needs of the poorest of the poor and so um, um I'm particularly fond of an approach known as agroecology. Every farm field is a sort of mini simplified ecosystem in which you can have different crops and insects and other critters. And we need to think about um, the ecology of those systems and how we can use it to our advantage to produce more food without necessarily buying fertilizers and improved seeds.
0: So moving on to our final question in your article, why it's important to recognize multiple food systems in Africa, the section, the way forward, you talk about how in order to provide food security in Africa, multiple agricultural approaches should be used at the same time. Um, Do you mind expanding a little on that?
2: Sure. So that article, I actually co authored with a student of mine. She was um, with me in uh, Burkina Faso, uh, where we were doing research on the New Green Revolution for Africa. And for her senior honors teacher, she did a side project on foraging. And so it's not uncommon in African food systems that women, especially, will go out and collect. Wild plants or fruits that just grow naturally on trees. And what we found out through that research is that it's really important for dietary diversity. So, dietary diversity is we're not just talking about total calories you're consuming, but thinking about the different food groups. You know, are you getting enough vegetables and fruits and, um, you know, essential minerals like iron Um, uh, and so these are these sort of foraging systems are incredibly important um, and should be supported and I think one of the problems sometimes is that if you are sort of expanding cash crop production you can be wiping out um, a lot of um, forage species that just live naturally in the environment around these crops. So we have to be conscious of these multiple systems and their importance to the nutrition of rural households.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: (laughs) So, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Before we close it off with our outro, is there anything else you would like to add to um, the podcast?
2: No, I think you've had an excellent set of questions. You've been very comprehensive. Thank you. So
1: thank you so much, Dr. Mo, out of your very busy schedule to speak with us today. It is such an honor and a privilege to get to speak with you today and learn more about your work. We really enjoyed learning more about how people on the ground are helping improve communities around the world. And thank you, podcast listeners, for joining us today on GeoSpeaks Podcast.